0: I am excited to share with you a journey that winds up in York, Pennsylvania, but starts all the way in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in the middle of Africa. Now I'm sure you're wondering how does one's journey start from the Congo and end up in York, Pennsylvania? Micaiah Ravel shares his story and explains exactly that, how that happened. A moment in his life that completely changed the direction and the trajectory of where he was going and put him on a path where he now fights alongside refugees. He fights for orphaned children of the war in Congo. There's a lot to unpack here. Makaya Ravel and his story is a remarkable and inspirational one. And I hope you enjoy episode 16 of the Journeyman Chronicles. But we need to start, as always, from the beginning. So this is Micaiah Ravel, and these are the Journeyman Chronicles. Oh man! Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I hope you guys are doing well. It's been a long two weeks, continuing uh, to deal with the pain in the backside that is COVID nineteen. I have been uh, quarantining the past week along with my wife, and my two little girls. We've been kind of isolated from the world. I'm getting a little, a little frustrated with it, but uh, but the upside is that I was able to work on the podcast. Um, I got to talk to a gentleman by the name of Micaiah Ravel. His story was brought to my attention uh, from Christine Blair. If you remember Christine, uh, a few episodes back, she had messaged uh, me this story. Uh, She knows Micaiah. She thought he would be great for the podcast and she was not wrong. I reached out to Micaiah, he was down to do the interview, we did it, and we had a great conversation. I had a blast interviewing him, I wish I would have not been as sick as I was, and I'm, I'm just saying that because, um, good God, I can just tell, just listening back, uh, I'm losing my voice, it's hard to to really uh, not notice that I was uh, stuffy, and I was dealing with, you know, a cold or flu, however you want to describe it. So. These are the uh, small little things that I'm learning to deal with uh, in the podcast world. But nonetheless, this story is inspiring. And I've said that several times while talking about it. And I'm sure I've used that word several times already in this podcast and in this episode in particular. But it truly is. And um, I hope you enjoy it because, as always, these episodes are meant to intrigue you and to engage you. And listening and recognizing your fellow uh, human being, uh, regardless of race or creed, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of where they are from, what they are doing in their lives. They're, we're all dealing with the same stuff, some more extreme than others, but the emotional impact that these moments have in our lives, they're all the same. They're all mutual. And so Micaiah's story is great. I hope you enjoy it. Let's get right into it. Episode 16 of the Journeyman Chronicles is with Micaiah Ravel. Let's go. Hello,
1: my friend. Can you hear me?
2: Yes. Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me?
1: (laughs) Yes, I can. I can hear you well. Nice to meet you. How are you?
2: I'm doing well. Nice to meet you as
1: well. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. You were brought to my attention from a mutual friend, Christine Blair. I uh, yeah. I interviewed her a couple weeks ago, and she mentioned you, and she mentioned your story. And uh, after reading your story, I wanted to talk to you. So I'm very, very grateful that you were able to give me some some of your time. How, uh, how have you been doing during this uh, entire pandemic? Just to break the ice, have you been? Uh, have you uh, been <laughs> managing their treacherous waters, so to speak? <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, that's a great question. I mean, the pandemic has been a uh, challenge in all levels, um, yeah. whether it's uh, you know, um, physical, emotionally, financially, especially with the organization, the foundation that we are running back in the Congo DLC. So um, it has been difficult, but um, the thing is that we have to learn how to manage uh, the darkness because uh, that's what the pandemic is. It's a kind of dark hour we're all navigating through. So we are surviving, um, you know, trying to keep our heads above water. So um, it's kind of difficult, but I think uh, if we keep doing what we're doing, that's for our safety and, you know, keep, keep on pushing forward, I think that we can... You know finally made it to the end of the line i think but oh, it's a challenging challenging
1: it's very challenging very challenging you had mentioned uh the foundation and um i'm, I'm assuming you're referring to the one that's uh that you named after your mother yeah
2: it, it, it's called the mary okay. foundation
1: this foundation um there's a lot that i want to unpack here and, and really the podcast is about interviewing people from this area and, and you are from the Congo, but you ended up here in Pennsylvania. So hence, here we are discussing your story. Um, but it's all about uh, perseverance and what you've done to get from that point to this point. And it's the journey mm-hmm. and it's the story. That's what I'm interested in. So please, if you wouldn't mind, uh, for those that are listening and for myself, let's start from the very beginning of your story. How did you, Micaiah, end up here in the United States? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's a long story.
2: Um, <laughs> um, I was born and raised in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, when I was born, uh, it was called, uh, it was being called Zaire. Okay. Uh, but over time you know conflicts you know where the country changes name changes flags everything changes but i was born in the congo um i came to the united states when i was 16 years old i grew up in a very uh, stable uh, household uh, both of my parents were home um, uh, my uh four brothers uh, uh i am a firstborn in the family so uh, their family, you know, you know, dynamic were kind of stable in a Congolese standpoint because both my parents were working in the government. Uh, back okay. then, they, they were working in the government Mobutu at that time because Mobutu was a president. So um, things were great. Um, uh, things were going well uh, until... Um, the genocide that took place uh, in Rwanda in 1994.: April 1994, a plane carrying President Habyarimana and his Burundian counterpart Cyprien nadiamira both Hutus, was shot down, killing everyone on board. The RPF said the plane had been shot down by Hutus to provide an excuse for the genocide. Well, the With- genocide was horrible. Uh, the international community uh, didn't do much. And the uh, victims uh, fled to the neighboring countries. Uh, One of the countries where they uh, end up with was my country, Congo, because we opened a border uh, for uh, this victim of genocide to have a home. At that time, my uh, government we're following uh, the Geneva uh, Conversion studies of a refugee that was took place in 1951. So, for that, essentially, open a border for uh, these people were fleeing violence to come to my country. Uh, that wasn't a problem um, until the government of Rwanda uh, started chasing them into Congo uh, to to continue to kill them because in the Congo, these uh, refugees were creating a kind of uh, you know rebellious to go take revenge okay. in Rwanda. So, but they chased them there and the the opposition of Mobutu, which was uh, my president, kind of took advantage of the situation. Um, they started training the young boys and from then, they create enough, you know, militias and manpower to go overthrow Mobutu. Um, this event took place in 1997. So Mobutu fled the country. Um, at that time, they kind of instigated the witch hunt uh, policy, which was um, if anyone who used to walk with the Mobutu government, where they were subject for uh, arrest or even, uh, you know, assassination or murder in, of of kind. So mm. my parent my parents found themselves in a very difficult situation at that time because you know everybody knew you know when they were government workers. Yeah.
1: Okay, yeah, I was about to you say know? yeah. So.
2: <laughs> So,
1: um, were your parents aware like, that this could be a problem as the tension yes. was escalating? They were like, Okay, we might have a yes. problem on our hands. Yeah,
2: yes, because at that time, uh, the borders were closed, um, you know, but the flies were not coming in and out, and um, but the war was already hot in the country, and um, the foreign forces, even joined you know, Congo was invaded by eight different countries. Mm. So, but well, we have all these foreign troops in the Congo. So, when they turned the Congo into the rape capital of the world, so rape, uh, they were using rape as a weapon of war. Um, schools were closed. You know, things were really bad in the Congo at the time. Wow. Uh, because for the soldier uh, in our country, they couldn't speak our language. And it's just a mess. Right. So, I was learning how to drive, drive, drive. Uh, even a, in a mix of a chaos, um, in a town where I was, you know, where we were living in the west part of the country, where the town was called Matadi. Uh, life was semi-normal in a way, you know, in spite of uh, you know the conflicts. Uh, you know, uh, but people were still doing the day to day things. Um, I was learning how to drive. And my driver got into a, kind of an accident with the, the police who were kind of patrolling the city. And uh, I got in the car, kind of still running. Uh, I went to my friend's house. And my friend said that I can stay there because if they know I'm there, yeah, uh, but they will go after him and uh, his family. So, since we live close to the port city, so for the safest place to me to go was to the ship to go to hide. So, my intention was to go hide in the ship and later one I'm going to go home to kind of stay away from it. the police, their chaos and stuff. But, um, Lelo, that I knew, they went to the hospital where my father was because at that time my father was ill, uh, where he was in the hospital. Uh, but they went to the hospital and they killed him. And when they came mm-hmm. back in my home, uh, can I start shooting my house? And my A.O. brother was struck with a bullet who also let it die from an uh, infection. 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 So I am um, I spent three days at that in a ship and next thing you know, I was, uh, you know, in Atlantic Ocean and uh, the ship crew uh, came in and they got me and they gave me medical treatment because when I was running, I fell and I cut myself with the leg and uh, there, put some bandage and give me medical treatment. Um,
1: so did you fall asleep on the ship, or had uh, you yes. had? A, okay, yeah, I fell asleep on the ship. <laughs> so, for th- so you yeah. were there for three days before it sailed, uh, or how? Um,
2: I was there for three days. Wow! And um, and but they came in and found me. They gave me food, and I didn't know where I was. Um, I found myself in the Atlantic Ocean. And I didn't speak a language, but okay. the captains uh kind of spoke a little bit of French. Okay. So we kind of communicated that way. Uh,
1: so they were helpful.
2: Kind of helpful, yes. But the captain was very helpful. Okay. Uh, he he really uh, helped me, uh, you know, you know, check on me, uh, make sure I took medicine, make sure I eat something. So, um, well, he kind of took me as a kind of personal care a little bit, kind of isolated me from the, the rest of the crew or member of the ship. So he put me in a different room so I don't integrate with other gotcha. adults who work. So we went to Brazil and uh, um, went to Brazil. I got on the ship. Um, went to immigration, but for some reason, but they brought me back to the ship and went to Argentina. Wow. Um, same thing happened. And and the captain said that kind of a final step is the United States, so for the ship it was coming to the United States. So for we are docked to New Orleans, and that's when uh, um, I, I was hand over to the immigration, U.S. immigration adults. That's how I came to the United States.
1: So you're 16 years old, I'm and you, you're on this ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. You can't mm. really communicate very well with the crew, somewhat. You, no. you said the captain spoke French.
2: The captain, yeah.
1: Um, I mean, I can only imagine what was going through your mind, but what what was going through your mind at that time? I mean, that you had no idea where you were going at all.
2: Um, at that time, I was thinking about my mom. Yeah. So uh, my mom, um, you know, was my... Uh, Kind of uh, which was my right hand, sure, person. Uh, where she was my hero, um, where uh, she sacrificed so much for me, and she was in my mind because I knew that if uh, she's okay, everybody else will be okay.
1: She had no so, idea where you were, I'm assuming, right?
2: No idea, no idea, no, nobody knew uh, where I was, and uh, you know, my brothers later told me that we did I was dead, uh. you know, that in, you know, I got killed somewhere and but they would never find me again.
1: How long was it until your mom got word that where you were and that you were alive?
2: Uh, it was about a month and a half.
1: Okay. Wow. Yeah. And that's in yeah. the United States. So now you're in the United States, handed over. And what happens with you now?
2: Growing up in Africa, you know, in the economy in particular, but you grew up with some kind of attitude because, sure, yeah. you know. In a school, you know, you know, like everybody bull in school, so you cannot be evicted.
1: Yeah, you got to be tough.
2: You got to be tough. <laughs> so, um, so I saw the small boats came to the ship to pick me up with the, you know, tall man, you know, with the uniform. And I told the captain that I'm not getting off of this ship. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, um, the captain said, "No, no, you know, I'll put you up to get out because uh, you know they will help you. They will, you know, try to find a place for you." And I said, "I'm not getting off." <laughs> so they end up on getting uh, uh, the the interpreter from uh, Canada. And uh, this uh, kind of wonderful woman where well, she was in fun with me and she explained the process ah. that you know um, if I uh, get off a ship, you know they will process me and they will issue protection and and that's how I was able to get off a ship. So you know but they were waiting there for quite some time right to get off a ship. After that, they took me to prison. Uh, I never been in prison before. I was terrified. They I took you the to prison. Night.
1: They took you to prison. Yes. In New York, or before yeah. you flew to New York?
2: Uh in New Orleans because oh, New it Orleans. was already late. Gotcha. So, how to spend the night in prison?
1: Uh, I got you. So that, well, jeez, yeah. wow. So you had to spend yeah. the night in prison. Gotcha.
2: Yeah. So next day, um, I was uh, on a plane to New York, and from a New York, we drove. So riding
1: Pennsylvania, you know, the the as you're telling me the story, I'm I'm sitting here and I'm one I'm thinking to myself, like I if I was in this in your shoes at this moment, I would feel like I'm in a I'm in a Twilight Zone episode where everything just doesn't really seem what it is. It's like, when were you able to finally get a sense of like uh, a reality, like uh, some sense of normalcy? Did it take you a long time? Because your whole world just flipped Upside down in a matter of days.
2: Yeah. Um I was physically sick. Sure. So uh nothing was making sense. Yeah. But um what helped was uh the interpreter was on me. Um up where she was continuing to inform me that um where I'm going and the why and I'll be able to make a phone call as soon as we get there. So I have the the back on my mind that I will call my mom and I will check on my mom and I can tell her what's going on with me. So nothing else was making sense. Nothing else mattered but the idea that I will have a conversation with my mom kind of uh, uh, suppress all the negativity, what's happening around me because that's what my focus was, to talk to my mom.
0: So
1: she was your driving force. She's always been your yes. driving force, it sounds like. Yeah. Uh, yes. When you finally spoke to her, tell me about that conversation.
2: When I spoke to her, uh, when they were in the hiding. Okay. Uh, so we couldn't talk long because when the person was in but they didn't want to know, but the people know where they were. But they were in the hiding, and the, um, when she was in the silence, and she stopped praying. You know uh, thanking God and uh can, you know tell him to be strong for sure was extremely happy to hear my voice, and I was relieved to hear my voice,
1: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I can only imagine I know that i'm I'm close with my mom, and so i when you said that she's my right hand i I completely understand that sentiment um one of the things that I thought was interesting when i was I was reading up on you was. I don't know if it's around this time or not, but you had uh, an experience with somebody that couldn't pronounce your name.
2: Uh, this was in a detention center. We have to go to school um, to learn English. And it wasn't my teacher, but uh, she couldn't pronounce my name, Kiangana Dialungana. Instead, where she uh, said that from now on, my name uh, become a Johnny. That's something much easier. Sure. For her to to pronounce. I i was okay with that because you know I thought this is a hard thing to work. You know, in the United States, you get randomly changed somebody's name and you know nothing will happen and the, the people have to be accepted to what's happening. And uh, uh people start calling me Johnny. Um some group of people, the area where I lived in the United States, where they where they don't know me as a Kiangana or Makaya. They know me as a Chinese uh, After leaving a detention center, you know, but we were kind of, you know, uh protesting about the condition that's happened. that was happening at detention center. This place we're hosting a an accompany managers uh the Uh, immigrant children who were coming to the United States from uh, all over the world. Um, This was in 2002, this event took place. Uh, The treatment there wasn't too too cool, Um, Um. uh, but there were evidence of abuse, uh, uh, kind of neglect and kind of a harsh, kind of a hostile environment to live in Canada, you know, where the kids, you know, we were immigrants, you know, refugees, asylum seekers, we didn't speak any English, and we didn't know any better. Um, and at a time, uh, even the U.S. was going through a tough time as well, because this was one year after nine eleven. Mm-hmm. so... The hatred toward immigrants, the demonization, the blame were very much alive um, a year later in 2002. So um, that kind of uh, spill over to the immigration policies. You know, so the immigrant were were not you know in the right place, the right time in the United States. So. We created some kind of advocacy with the Amnesty International. Um, I was part of it, and um, they end up, uh, um, you know, writing a report, making a lot of noise about it. You know, but Amnesty International—it's a wonderful organization. You know, when it comes to defending, uh, you know, human rights generally speaking, uh, it was a President Bush administration end up uh, kind of closing the place and. Those children who had a family in the U.S. they were given to the families, and uh, those of us who didn't have any family, we were put into forced care system. So I went to Philadelphia. The foster care system wasn't great. Uh, I have uh, a negative experience in the foster care system. And when I aged out of foster care system, I was, you know, transferred to York, York, Pennsylvania. So that's where I met my parents.
1: You were in the foster care system I'm assuming like for 2 years, is that right or or how long were you there for?
2: Um about a year. Okay. Yeah.
1: And that yeah. that experience was not good for you at all, you said. It was a negative experience.
2: Um I'm not speaking for everyone because sure. everyone have their own different experiences. Uh, but I think uh, the foster system in the United States can do better, uh, especially following through to those who are aging out through the system, you know, because it seems like uh, after you age out a system, for you, you get abandoned and you went on. And it is difficult with to, you know, go to college, you know, you know, for to be productive over society because, you know, it's in a weak childhood system, and for you who grow up like that, and for you become all of a sudden for you are independent, but you really don't have the resource for you need, but to make you productive in society. So I think uh, the system we can do better, especially on the children who are aging out of system.
1: There's no tools. You're saying there's no. There's they don't have. There's, there's nothing. There's no
2: tools. There's no follow up. You know, sometimes in life, what we need is just a little bit of push, like, you know, somebody continuously to push you, but to do better. You know, I would argue that, you know, I think there must be some kind of program that, you know, better make sure that the foster care, those who are aging out the foster care system, we can finish high school and then they have an opportunity to go to college. You know, if uh, they want to, you know, it doesn't have to be college. It can be a vocational school. Sure. You know, you can kind of teach trade or things like that. But you know, unfortunately, but you see a lot of these, uh, you know, forced grade children ending up in uh, death or in prison or in hospitals because they don't have a, you know, kind of guardianship through the system.
0: You know, one of the things that I appreciate about talking with people in their journey is that I have an opportunity uh, to learn something. And I hope that while people listen to this podcast, they experience uh, the same thing. And while Micaiah is talking, you know, there's a lot that's going through my mind. Um, Being a refugee, escaping in genocide, uh, even though you're dealing with This genocide sweeping from Rwanda into uh, the DRC where he lives, you still have the ability to live and cope with somewhat of an everyday life. You hear him say that um, it was still somewhat normal and they they still did the day-to-day things and that just, uh, it shows that I, I take this life for granted because I couldn't imagine living like that but here he is, 16 years old and he is doing his day-to-day thing in the middle of this, this war that's beginning to brew. And uh, he is learning how to drive. There's an accident that he's involved in where the local police are involved. And of course, given the climate of what's going on in the Congo right now and the genocide that's coming through, he already knows... Given that his parents work in the government, he already knows he can't be anywhere near the police, the militia that's coming through. And so he runs, he goes. That to me is um, powerful because I couldn't imagine the adrenaline, the fear of knowing what could happen because there's obviously no doubt in his mind what can happen. It's been proven Uh, they will kill and murder and being 16 years old, I remember what I was going through. I was just starting high school. You know, I'm worried about acne, and I'm worried about uh, how my clothes look. And here's Makaya running for his life. And so he ends up on this ship because he knows that he could possibly hide out in Port City. He can hide here, hopefully, lay low for a couple hours, and get out of there safely. Um, and unfortunately, that's just not the way it worked out. And you hear him talk about how... He fell asleep on this ship, and he wakes up, and it's in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Um, You know, finding out that they uh, killed his father while his father was in the hospital, and then went to his house and shot it up, and his brother ended up being struck by a bullet and died from infection later on. Eight years old, his brother was, and here he is, unable to truly mourn the loss of his family because at this point he's unaware of what's even going on. He's in the middle of the ocean on a ship and uh, the crew of the ship take care of him. And here he is now going through this uh, process of trying to find an immigration system that'll take him in. And of course, Brazil and Argentina, they deny him. And so he ends up in New Orleans and that's how Micaiah ends up in in the United States. I don't typically do this, but I, I just felt compelled to really speak at this point, uh, and just help people truly understand, like, I, I hope you understand the significance of this moment in someone's life, um, um, this person being Makai Ravel, who couldn't speak English, found himself in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, is trying to communicate with the captain the best way he can. There's some common ground with the French language, they can kind of communicate that way, And but here he is and the foster care system that he goes through, and um, he's able to push himself through. Uh, I find that so admirable. So before we continue on with the story, let's take a quick small break, and then we'll get back uh, to the second half of this with Makai Ravel. Okay, in the second half of this interview, Micaiah talks about all of his parents. We get into uh, his birth mother a little bit more. We get into how his birth name, Kiangana Dialungana, how it caused some friction within his family. And we also get into his adoptive parents, Dr. Elizabeth and Alvin Ravel. Now Dr. Alvin Ravel has since passed, but he was a big part of Micaiah's uh, life here. Um, Micaiah is very, very fond of him, and Dr. uh, Elizabeth Ravel still, to this day fights along her son and helps him in his mission for the refugees and for the orphans of the war in Congo. So let's get right into it. Here is the second half of the interview. Enjoy.
2: Um, Going back to Congo, uh, Mary had me when she was 18 years old, a teenage uh, young woman. Um, She grew up Catholic. At that time, you know, having a baby, um, I married, <laughs> yeah, uh, as a Catholic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in, a, in 1986 <laughs> was <a> no, <no-no>. no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I grew up so, Catholic, I, I know, I know that, I know that story. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, so well, her parents uh, wanted her to, you know, kind of, uh, you know, having a bullshit. Uh, uh, gotcha. Because uh, what she did it was, what she brought shame in the family, you know. And uh, initially, because when she got pregnant, um, and uh, and uh, there was a complication between uh, my, you know, grandpa and uh, you know my my, my mom and uh, her best friend got involved, and uh, somehow I think that. Uh, uh, my grandpa uh, gave her uh, a for something to give Mary so that complicated complicate pregnancy. And uh, when Mary got sick and she went to the hospital, the doctor informed me what was going on and she ran away from home. But she went in a, in a remote area uh, called Gamba. Uh, this is where uh, kind of spiritual church. In, uh, they believed their own religion, but they believed their own way of uh, life. And they took Mary in. Um, I was born in that temple. Oh, so okay. uh, the Naya was born, um, the uh, founder of this church, his son happened to be in area. And he came and uh, he named me, his family name, uh, Dialungana Kianga. Meaning that the gift it doesn't belong to you, and uh, he told Mary that you just give both to one of us. So, you know, coming back to the U.S., um, the name you just you know mentioned uh, the Magaya, you know, she and Revel Kiangana brought conflict at home. You know, my father really didn't really accept that name. And um, his resentment, you know, kind of spill over me a uh, uh, little bit. So it was kind of complicated, difficult to live, you know, you know, with that kind of environment a little bit, that yeah. you know, being angry because of me my God. But Mary, my mom refused to change it. And uh in the back of my mind, um you know, I always reflect that you know the conflicts, like I can hear them in my mind, you know, they arguing in the middle of the night, and uh, I'm pretending to sleep, but I can hear everything's going on there mm. and And when I met um doctors' rebels, changing a name was one thing I, I hope for. Um, and they allow me to do that. So to me, that's a kind of, you know, cycle thing that they, you know, they do for me. Like it's kind of, a, you know, old battle I've been fighting that I can see me winning by, you know, changing a name that caused me suffering
1: sure it was like you were given an opportunity to finally experience something that you were that you were having for that internal battle that you just referred to were you were you always Like, did you always want to change your name or was that just something that when you always just kind of, it was in the back of your head. And then when you finally had this opportunity, you were like, oh, I can do this now. Or
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if, uh, you know, you can change your name. I mean, to me, I feel like uh, I was stuck with that. Yeah. But uh, feeling uh, um, kind of responsible for the conflict. That oh, was okay.
1: Home. So you felt responsible for so, the, the arguments I between your... Oh, gotcha. You.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of, you know, even with the birthday celebration, you know, um, you know, Mary, uh, Mary had to celebrate birthday with me in private where my brother's birthday was celebrated together as family. So it was interesting you know, yeah. to see, you know, I was just a shame, you know, yeah. feeling ashamed and, uh, you know, responsible and, you know, kind of blame myself for years. Yeah.
1: But now you have this opportunity, you've this new name. Tell me how you met, um, Dr. Ravels.
2: Um, when I aged out of foster care system, like we just, you know, alluded, um, I kind of got kicked out of system. Like you know, I'm in my own now. Right.
1: right. <laughs> so <laughs> we with <we> no English.
2: <laughs> oh, you still you know, did. Know so
1: you didn't know English at this point yet? <laughs> no. Or not at all? I, oh, wow. I, I, I
2: kind of. Uh, I can hear you know. A little bit. Certain words, but yeah. speaking. Uh, no. Nah. Wow. Yeah. So. I came to York, PA, to live in a group home. Uh, the, but the home was called a Gordon Venture. Uh, they were famous here in York, uh, helping a Chinese immigrant during a uh, Bill Clinton administration. So they took me in, and uh, I started going to school, in high school. I attended William Penn High, uh, here in York. And in 2005, that's when I received... A called that Mary has a die. Um, I'm sorry. So when Mary died, I can you know I was in a very difficult space uh, psychologically. Yeah. Um, I I I lost the will to live uh, because you know Mary was Mary. So It was difficult uh, obtaining that news that, you know, Mary dying. And um, I stopped going to school and kind of planning how I'm going to kill myself. So... um...
1: Take your time, man.
2: I'm sorry.
1: No, don't apologize. Um, Take your time. It was a dark spot in your life. Yeah.
2: Sometimes I feel like I'm still
1: there. Yeah. I think those of us that have been in that dark spot, man, it never leaves. You just learn to cope with it.
2: There was uh, somebody who used to volunteer in this facility. Um, Lian. Lian knew um, a local local, uh, psychologist by the name of Dr. Rivera. She was doing a pro bono psychotherapy uh, for the immigrants, you know, helping the trauma. Uh, she, Leanne contacted uh, Dr. Rivera and that's how I met Dr. River. Yeah.
1: She saw something in you.
2: Yes. Yes, she did. Yeah. First time we met, uh, she asked me what, what my name was. And I told her my name was Johnny. Uh, she was uh, educated enough to know that uh, Congo is a Francophone country. Uh, we don't name people English names. Right. And uh, she said, really, is your name Johnny? And that's when I say, no, my name is Kiangana uh, Diyarungana. Um, and she pronounced well, and uh, she asked where Johnny came from. I explained, and she said that from now on, never, ever allow anyone to call you Johnny again. Um, awesome. If uh, if anybody cannot pronounce your name, you teach them how to pronounce your name. Nice. So I kind of felt empowered. Like yeah, you know, you know I cannot be Johnny anymore. So with that change for me, um, that day and. Um the fun thing was um the first time they schedule our meeting, they asked to take me to a event, um both for my parents, and uh, I refused to go. So
1: you weren't comfortable or
2: um I wasn't feeling like integrating with the people. Gotcha. You know, I just yeah. want to feel my spot. inspired. Um I didn't feel like it going. And my friend, um, who also is living in this place, uh, really encouraged me to go. Okay. It's a it's good way to get in the house and then just go to the event. And that's how I I went. So, going to the event um, and meeting uh, my parents really uh, changed my life today. Yeah, it really changed my life.
1: Talk to me about the work that you're doing right now um in regards to the orphans um specifically orphans in the congo as a result of the war that you uh that you've been helping you started i know you started this foundation and you're doing a lot of work there's a lot of stuff that you're involved in and i just i would like if you don't mind i would love for you to just share that with everybody
2: um what happened in the congo uh was a assault our way of life that you know uh, foreign troops coming in um, rape uh, committing a genocide yeah. ethnic cleansing in my country and supported by multinational corporations simply because we have a, you know a natural resource that they needed instead of a uh, coming in with their fair trade spirit, where they're coming in with the the weapons to destroy the fabric of our life, to destroy the land of our ancestors uh, by instigating violence. We are not violence people. Violence came to us. Um, I saw violence in my country. I saw what conflict can do you know, to the mind of the people. I saw what the damage it has caused in our communities. The idea, using the rape as a weapon of war, people were leaving the villages, people were committing a mass suicide in the country because of that. Mm-hmm. And, and killing a parent, leaving an offense, in millions of orphans in my country. So, when I was giving a giving a little bit of the opportunity, when my uh, mother died, Mary, um, I didn't want her name to just, you know, vanish. Uh, I didn't want her idea, but things where he she believed were to be, you know, disappear. Um, on her tribute, that's why I decided to create the Mary Mama Gaia Foundation to help the orphans of a war in the Congo. There are millions of orphans, but if we can help one at a time, if that's what's gonna take, uh, we must do that. We, uh, we opened as an orphanage in 2012. From then now, we have assisted over seven thousand orphans.
1: That's in, uh, great.
2: Uh, this last uh, past Christmas, uh, last year, we fed um, over five hundred orphans uh, because a lot of these kids don't get a decent meal, but they don't get gift. So mm. uh, we have been getting involved, trying to kind of bring a happiness you know, in the face of suffering. So the motivation came from uh, my country, the, the agony I saw in my country, and the loss of my uh, mother. So that's what created the Mary Mamakaya Foundation. The idea came about in 2005, but it became a reality uh, in 2012. That's when we started working. But um, it won't be possible if it wasn't my parents and their friends and the American people. Um, uh, It took the whole village of people to come. Uh, People donating a money, donating a time. Christine Blair was working there full time uh, volunteering her, her time and the resource just for, to make sure that the children, you know, have something to wear, uh, uh, medical care, uh, you know, any capacity that but she could, where she even send the clothing back home, you know, but to make sure the children have their clothes for the winter. So the mentality of the American people who are around me, my mom's friends, and you know that really made a difference. Uh, but they gave me hope that this is a possible it can happen. So it could have done, you know, if it wasn't the help we received and they continue to receive on uh, today. Even being here, you know, you're giving me, you're giving me time. You are contributing to the cause. You know, sometimes when we do things. But we don't know what effect it's going to make to the other people that we will never know. Right. Um, I am, uh, you know, you know, kind of living proof of that.
1: You are. You're a great example of that. The possibilities are endless. Um, And, you know, hearing, hearing you talk, I'm, I'm just overwhelmed with a lot of different emotions right now because your demeanor is calm. You wouldn't think that. You've gone through this traumatic experience, but the traumatic experience that you've gone through, it didn't keep you down. You ended up building something out of that. And here you are um, talking about a foundation that you thought of in 2005 and you saw you saw it come to fruition uh, seven years later. Um, We're talking right now about your life and. Does it ever you ever I mean, I'm sure you do think about it often, but the journey that you've taken to get to where you're at now. I mean, you have a master's. What do you what did you get your master's in?
2: Um, In a national peace and a conflict resolution.
1: Look at the work you're doing right now. This is amazing stuff. How does this work in regards to helping the orphans? Is that over in the Congo or? Are they coming here and you're helping them? I, I'm, I'm, I'm naive when it comes to that process.
2: Uh, the process is very simple because, um, I mean, it's not simple. You know, there's a lot of obstacles because you have to deal with the government, the people. Right. Uh, people, you know, where not everyone is coming to the cause with the right attention and the government is watching what they you doing. So, um, uh, which is what we love that. Um, our children... Um, the idea is, you know, a lot of times people wanna, you know, come to the West. We don't wanna come to America. They wanna, you know, you know, it's great. I'm not objecting that. I think it's wonderful. But the Makaya, the Mary Mamataya Foundation doctrine is to raise Congolese children, and they one day become a pro- productive citizen of Congo. We don't do adapt- uh, adoption. We don't allow for the children to go somewhere else. We want them put to grow up in the Congo and one day um, help other children, other people in the country. So um, we only get our, our children at the, uh, under the age of one, so well, we get them fairly young, so we can raise them from a you know beginning, and then so we can come here people. They know all their lives, but we raise them in the Congo, and uh, well, we have a full staff in the Congo, which is uh, how people are doing a tremendous job, and uh, we train young people, and also you know, how to be, you know, a peaceful you know dialogue, because. In a society such as the Congo, where people went through so much, you know, conflict, violence, economic co- conflict, gender-based conflicts, you know, kind of, you know, homophobic, mm-hmm. and while, while you have over time, but you have a depressed generation, you know, and with the tone, with the anger the sadness into violence sometimes. That's what we engage young men, young Congolese boys, uh, to, you know, peace dialogue and the helping foundation. You know, but you see a lot of uh, young men are taking care of babies in our orphanage mm. in the Congo. So that's part of our strategy what we uh, use to kind of, uh, you know, unpack the you know, sadness with the anger, the revenge mindset, turning them into their compassion, you know, young people, the caring and loving
1: young men. I never even thought about that. That's very, very cool. The, the proverbial, you know, men don't show weakness. And you, I'm sure in the Congo, the young men were um, treated the same way to show them compassion and to have them take care of, Uh, babies and children that's a wonderful way to help them see how important it is to be compassionate and be empathetic and be caring and nurturing thank you so much for for sharing your story with me because I don't know if I've ever heard a story this unique and this impactful to be quite honest and I'm not saying that Uh, lightly. Um, I've heard a lot of great stories and and inspirational stories, but yours only because I keep reminding myself that you came here when you were 16 years old, not knowing where the hell you were going. And here you are and you made something out of yourself. Um, What what is next for you? What do you have planned um, for for your future endeavors in in regards to your foundation or anything else? And for that
0: matter,
2: Um, last year, um, uh, we created a small company, uh, international company called Peace Promise Consulting. Um, Peace Promise Consulting is a response to what's going on in the world. So what we do is we, you know, uh, contact these entities and they tell us what's going on, how we can help them. And we come back and we figure out how we can maintain a peaceful uh, uh, work environment. Because while we have noticed that companies, uh, big or small, are losing billions of dollars a year because they are avoiding a conflict in the workplace. So they're paying off a conflict uh, Mm. instead of uh, confronting it or addressing it. because in some point, like what we just had a training, but we talked about conflict can be good if you use it well. Um, it can be, because conflict can bring energy. Sure. So if you you turn that energy into positive, you know, but you have a successful home, successful family or businesses. So Peace Promise Consulting is coming in to help to build a, you know, more safe community and you know businesses and government entities, so that's a project that we're working on now. So, but the website is at I really encourage uh, people to look at it and see what you know who we offer. And um, what's next? Uh, you talked about you know how I came here. Uh, it has been there uh, twenty years. Twenty years.
1: Twenty years. Um,
2: It'll be 20 years in December, but I'm still, you know, fighting the immigration system. Oh, wow. um, uh, in uh, April of uh, this year, I'm going to go back in court and continue the fight. Um, And we'll take it from there. Um, But the journey is... uh, you know, Felix. I'll be honest with you. I think uh, you know you heard this before, but life life is a full of events. Um, you know, but you have to take care of each event as it comes. You have to give it your hundred percent attention before you move on the next thing. Yeah, because for you the wanna you know mess up with some particular events, and what happened to us, you know, naturally but so it can be ten or fifteen percent, but eighty-five or ninety percent of the rest is a, is it's your reaction. Uh, it's more like a, what do you do about what happened to you? So, um, my story is not unique. Uh, for you, hear a lot of uh, refugees uh, today. You know where they're coming from there. Um, Nigeria or Sudan or Afghanistan or Syria you see some kind of uh, similarity Um, what's uh, unique about my story is the events that's happening around me Mm. Um, you know meeting the people that I met here they invested the time and energy and the resource just so I can be well That's something that I don't see every day. Um, It's very, very unique. So learning that kind of behavior around me, seeing these people, you know, supporting me, my mom, you know, 24-7 taking care of me, you know, whatever I need, you know, but she's providing my father, my late father, uh, you know, but they... They, they are there for me. So mm-hmm. the only thing I can do is paying it forward, uh, the foundation. And oftentimes um, I speak, you know, around the country, speak to uh, young people, trying to, you know, motivate them, uh, try to give them a direction in life, uh, trying to teach them something new is it because for what happened to me in this country have been tremendously positive? And that's something that I, you know, very much, very much appreciate
1: I very much appreciate you um, opening up my eyes to that, to the realization that um, when you said that your story isn't unique, that the, it's, it's the circumstances around it, but the fact that, um, um, your, your story as a refugee, there's, there's others before you and, there, and there'll be more after you. And that makes me think that, OK, then I need to, I need to open up my eyes uh, and start paying attention to the world around me, which is the whole concept of this podcast was to get to know different types of people and, and understand their story um, and to learn more and to become better people. I just met you tonight, but I appreciate you so much. I, I'm glad we met. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time out of your, I, I know you're a busy guy. You got your night, you got the <laughs> nice jacket. You, you looking sharp right there, man. What's your What's your, what's your schedule like? What's your, what's your day like? Uh,
2: my day um, uh, in the morning, uh, I usually go to Odyssey or Silver Spring. And I kind of helping in a you know human rights organization there. I usually spend the five hours and then I come back home and they start writing a content for the business and uh, kind of uh, um, kind of creating a, you know, you know, looking for clients in you know, other kind of stuff, emailing and you know, having a meeting after meeting with the you know Congo, the foundation. So I'm I'm very busy, but you know, uh with the business uh, Mary Higgins is uh, our you know if you call a business for you get her and she's also helping, you know, kind of mitigate the uh, business. So I do have a help, you know, I do have a help around me uh, you know Doug McKenzie is helping. And uh just a lot of people around me are uh, helping as well. But I'll I can be busy at the time.
1: Well <laughs> um please continue doing what you're doing. Please know that people are, are noticing it, uh, which I'm sure you're aware of, but you know, hopefully people listening to this podcast, more people will be aware of your story and and, and check out your mission. And thank you, Makai Ravel, it's been a pleasure meeting you.
2: Thank you so much as well. You know, uh, thank you for giving their voice you know to the cause and I do appreciate it and i heard a lot of great things about your podcast and I was like ah I want to be there
1: <laughs> <laughs> I try to, to to keep the to keep it interesting so so hopefully you, you if you listen to any other episode you'll enjoy it I had a guest that canceled on me and so I just kind of just sat there for like 15 minutes and I did an episode and I was like, all right, this, you know, it, it's like a learning curve. It's like a, I want to yeah. have this idea. I have this. I know what I want to do with it. And sometimes it just doesn't work out. But this this mm. worked out beautifully. And I'm I'm very, very grateful. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me, man. Thank nice you. to get to know you. Thank you so much. You
0: take care of yourself.
2: Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye
0: such an awesome guy I really really enjoyed this uh this episode because I get to learn things you know I I get to learn things doing the the podcast in general but this particular episode uh, you know the the research that I was doing looking it up learning about the Congo just to give you some quick background on Micaiah to to wrap up um he received his bachelor's in 2015 for international relations from York College, got his master's in international peace and conflict resolution in 2017. He started the Mary Mambu Makaya Foundation in 2012. He has two brothers in DRC right now that are helping with the foundation as well. Here's the situation with Makaya: is through all this, all the work that he's been doing, his immigration status is still technically kind of a limbo for the past 20 years. He can't go back to the Congo until he obtains protection from the U.S. government uh, because he is an asylum seeker. So he's got that on his plate as well. And this April, he's going back to court to deal with that. But, you know, considering everything that he's doing here uh, and the work that he's doing. And he's still dealing with the fact that he you know the immigration status uh and that is uh that has to be a lot on him and my hat off to you micaiah for doing all the work that you're doing and still maintaining a level head even to deal with your own situation now i'm going to be posting links to all of this information in the description so you can check it out for yourself but the work that he's doing Please help him if you can. If you know anybody that is in position to do a lot of work and help for him, send this information. Spread it. Share it. Micaiah Ravel, thank you so much for everything that you're doing. Thank you for joining me on the Journeyman Chronicles. I will see you guys in two weeks. Until then, remember to maintain focus and stay continuous through all four seasons. My name is Felix C. Arroyo. I am the Journeyman, and these are the Journeyman Chronicles. Peace.